um, exploits via iMessage. And one way I think could happen is someone sends you an iMessage with that PDF and your device is going to parse a preview of it. And when it does that, that's when it gets, uh, you know, cracked. And so that's possibly one way. I mean, you know, the fact they mentioned that malcrafted PDF um, does at least tell me that that might be the vector that Pegasus was using. So there was another, I found another headline. Uh, this is from Washington Post. It says, new Pegasus, and this is with the way that news is today, who knows what to make of this. It says, Washington Post, new Pegasus hack found targeting Apple devices through iMessage, researchers say. Apple releases a software update Monday to fix a security flaw exploited in hacking iPhones and other devices made by the company. Spyware researchers have captured what they say is a new exploit from NSO Group's Pegasus surveillance tool targeting iPhones and other Apple devices through iMessage, and yet another sign that chat apps have become a popular way to hack into the devices of political dissidents and human rights activists. Apple issued a patch on Monday to close the exploited dis- the exploit discovered by researchers who said they found the hack in the phone iPhone records of Saudi political activists and alerted the company to the problem. This is the first time since 2019 that the malicious code used in the Pegasus hack has been discovered by researchers. It's, it offers new insights into the techniques of the company highlighted in July by the Pegasus Project, a multi-part global internet. The researchers declined to name the Saudi activist who was targeted at the person's request. They did not reveal which NSO governmental client they believe deployed Pegasus against this person. They did say that the hacking technique used, which they called forced entry, has been active since at least February and can invade iPhones, MacBooks, Apple Watches, with the zero, uh, that. Okay, so the thing is, for those who don't recall, I'm tweeting that one out now for those who want to read that from the Washington Post. Uh, Pegasus was essentially claiming that they were getting into the phones not only through iMessage. So this fix today, this update to 14.8, which by the way, we're all downloading 15.0 like in the next couple days, maybe even later, uh, 11 hours from now. So it's interesting they're releasing this now when 11 hours from now there's a whole new version of the operating system itself. But um, yeah, Pegasus was um, implying they have multiple ways into the phone. It's not just iMessage that they believe they were also getting in through WhatsApp. So um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't feel... Com- just by updating every, yeah. every single app on your phone is a potential vector for, for someone to hack because you got to rely on the security of the app as well as the you know the uh, os right. correct so moving on the second biggest article of the moment is from the wall street journal jeff horowitz says internal facebook documents reveal uh X-Check or Cross-Check, a program that shields VIP users from normal content enforcement policies, which include over 5.8 million users in 2020. So people are calling this the VIP list, which are people who are not moderated on by Facebook. 
by design that there's an actual list and but 5.8 million that's a lot of vips today it shields millions of vip users from the company's normal enforcement process the document shows some users are whitelisted rendered immune from enforcement actions while others are allowed to post rule violating material pending facebook employee review that often never come at times the documents show XCheck has protected public figures whose posts contain harassment or incitement to violence, violations that would typically lead to sanctions for regular users. In 2019, it allowed international soccer star Neymar to show nude photos of a woman who had accused him of rape to tens of millions of his fans before the content was removed by Facebook whitelisted accounts, shared inflammatory claims that Facebook's fact checkers deemed false, including that vaccines are deadly that Hillary Clinton had covered up pedophile rings and that then-President Donald Trump had called all refugees seeking asylum animals, according to documents. A 2019 internal review of Facebook's whitelisting practices marked attorney-client privileged found favoritism to those users to be both widespread and not publicly defensible. We are not actually doing what we do, what we say we do publicly, said the confidential review. It called the company's actions a breach of trust. He added, unlike the rest of our community, these people can violate our standards without consequences. And I guess this opens the, an opportunity for a debate. Because if I had a platform like Facebook, I would have a two-tiered system of people who basically I don't feel the need to police and other people who need to earn that kind of right or privilege or what you know whatever you want to call it. And by the way, don't we doesn't don't don't humans kind of do this in general, like people who we know and have some develop some level of trust with. We say, OK, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then everybody else, we don't know you. And if you act badly, we're going to kick you out. So uh, the problem, of course, is Facebook. It wasn't transparent about this fact that there was this earned white, you know, VIP list. Um, and so that's, you know, they're being called out for hypocrisy, if nothing else. I mean, is it like, um, it's a bit different to the verification in Twitter, Tyler, because yeah. it's kind of like special privileges for those in par. So mm. it's back to like you were describing the bourgeoisie and the proletariat yes well uh... i like your example because in twitter's case i think everybody subconsciously tell me if i'm wrong i would love to hear somebody's thoughts on this but i think that people users of twitter when there are people who have blue check marks everybody just assumes that people with that have been verified are going to be allowed to push the boundaries a little bit further than people who don't that if you that if you aren't verified, you should probably be a little more careful than somebody who is verified, because you could be assumed to be a bot or whatnot. That's, that would I assume the same on Instagram. If I see somebody who's verified on Instagram, I assume they're going to be given a little more slack by the moderators, and I assume the same on Twitter. Although I am verified on Twitter. And I would assume if Facebook had a verified system that the people who are verified would be able to push the boundary, you know, be given a little more leniency 
with regard to moderating their content. So it, it also is a bit dodgy, Tyler, because, um, you know, if anyone had have unraveled the Epstein story like 10 years ago, like people would have gone, what? You're like a conspiracy theorist. But but now it's real. So like when they're policing things that are not yet verified, I think it's a little bit like they're playing. Yeah. Back to your kind of. Yeah, the role that, that that they're playing, they're kind of the high priests of what you should and shouldn't hear. So the most like comment is, and on this Wall Street Journal article, there's a thousand replies or responses in, in the chat box at the end of the article. And then I just sorted them by most liked. So the most liked, which was liked by 40%. Of the, uh, f well, no, it got it got nearly four hundred likes, and there's nearly a thousand comments. The top most liked comment uh, was from someone named Br Siebs, and it says Facebook is one of those the most morally bankrupt, damaging companies of the twenty first century. History will not look favorably upon the impact it's had on our society. And this is the problem with their new uh, digital currency, is it not? And David Marcus, who used to run Facebook Messenger, who's now running the, their digital currency and wallet. The wallet's called Novi. The currency's called Diem. And David Marcus recently said, we can't get a fair shake. Well, no, you can't, David, because as another day and another example of why Facebook can't be trusted. Here's another example. Here's today's example. Yesterday's example, literally yesterday, 24 hours ago, the example was that researchers found out that the data that Facebook had said they were giving them to do their research since 2019 through today just was only half of the data of U.S. users, and Facebook had assured them that it was all of the data. That was yesterday's example. This is today's example, that there's you know, a whitelist that you never acknowledged existed and now it's been revealed it has existed. And you're violating people's trust on a daily basis. Yeah, and a few months ago that they, they didn't allow their content moderators to tell anyone about the trauma that they'd seen apart from some helpline that's yeah. You know, so but I, I, I I'm actually gonna give them a little slack on that. I can if I would do the same if I was a company, I'd be like, listen, uh you gotta sign this NDA about your work because you're gonna be exposed to murders and rapes and all kinds of stuff and so we don't want you talking about that outside of the office so i actually gonna as as much as we could debate that's a debatable point i acknowledge anyone who would debate that but i'm gonna give them a little bit you know uh, uh just for the sake of it, this issue of the trustworthiness and kind of to that commenter's point about how uh this is just how i mean the 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 popularity with to that response, Facebook's one of the most morally bankrupt, damaging companies of the 21st century, and history will not look favorably upon it. And to get that many likes uh, as a response says something about um, how Facebook is perceived in, in the U.S. Uh, anyway, so it's a challenge. Next one. M moving on. Next one is from CNBC that Intuit... My God, and the, one of the other morally bankrupt companies of American tech, Jesus Christ, this is the makers of TurboTax, who that if, if, if there's anyone who wants to compete with Facebook for the most you know, reprehensible 
behavior, it's TurboTax, which... Grab some popcorn, folks. This one always makes me laugh. <laughs> these, these bastards, just this is perhaps the most egregious, shady behavior uh, of a tech company. And they got sued and they lost, as they should, which was they were claiming, ah, file your taxes free. And it takes, in the U.S., uh, uh, the Scandinavians will laugh, but actually takes several hours to file your taxes in the U.S. And, and people really push it off and delay it. It's just it's like doing, you know, cramming for an exam. It's a real pain in the ass for most people. And Intuit had this TurboTax thing, and they said file for free. Because legally, they had to. They had to provide a way to do it for free. They didn't want to. Although they kind of did because they wanted to trick people into using TurboTax and they got this is look, look how apps I can't. It's hard to think of something more shady than this. It says file for free right here. Do it right now. Click right here. Boom. Get you started. Great. What's your name? Step two, step three, step four, step five, step six, step 98, step 99, step 102, 103, 104. And after a few hours of this nonsense, it says, great. Now, would, would you like to go ahead and pay to have this, uh, ta- this, the tax? We, 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 we're done. We're done here. Now let's go ahead and file this bad boy for the simple low price of $59.99. And you're like, wait a minute. I just spent three hours. This thing said it was free. And now where's the free filing? And they, it was, it was apparently somewhat, it was like a, the world's hardest where's Waldo. It was hidden somewhere. No one could find it. Question 98 and you didn't answer it correctly. It was like some weird trap door that it was intentionally designed so that nobody could find it. And, uh, that's just, it's truly, truly shady stuff right there. So, that's Intuit. Intuit's the, you know, kind of made their whole company based on TurboTax. Now Intuit says it's agreed to acquire MailChimp for $12 billion in cash and stock. And Intuit will buy email marketing company MailChimp for $12 billion, the company's announced Monday. Intuit said it will use the acquisition to accelerate growth among small business clients. So... Uh, MailChimp is based out of Atlanta, never took VC funding. So that this is remarkable to have a $12 billion exit with no investors. Holy cow, are the, are, are the founder, uh, that's an incredible windfall. Holy shit. Um, that's big because they, they get a huge percentage of that because they're not sharing it with investors. That's just tremendous. Truly, you you would have to have, I don't know, a hundred million billion dollar exit, you know, with investors to give you a kind of proportion. So, wow, huge, 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 huge exit. Um, And I guess they they enough was enough. (laughs) They wanted out. Uh, So so just quickly on this, Tyler Mailchimp is um, used by a lot of software companies to help distribute for anybody that doesn't know or doesn't understand from the name MailChimp used to distribute emails so mass marketing emails and whatnot and the reason why it was so successful is it because um, anybody who's ever had to do any kind of like email configuration setup it's a massive pain in the ass it's 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 horrible horrible work Um, and even DevOps people don't really enjoy sort of managing it MailChimp offers a, a really beautiful to use sort of system that enables you can just sort of set it up and then give it to another administrative member in your company like in your 
uh, and your social media sort of department and whatnot, and they can just handle all the mass marketing stuff and everything else. What's really interesting this is like, the, I know we're always harping on about the juicy data, but they have like 10, 15 million customers, but it, that's, that's the active customers that are using the service. What MailChimp does really well as well is that it saves all of the engagement statistics of all of the people that you ping out to. So for every customer that they've got, um, that are using the service actively. They've got 100, 10,000, 50,000 customers that your paying customer is sending things to, if that makes sense. So although they've got, you know, they might have 10, 15 million paying customers, they have billions of receivers who are receiving the emails and then sending black through the click-through rates and the open rates and all the email addresses and everything else. So they have that in the system. So they don't just have the details of the customers that are paying, they have the details of the customers that are paying for their services and a lot of the details and the statistics about the people that the mass marketing campaigns are going to. So this is like, it's an enormous network of, of data and tracking that works very, very well and has been very dominant in the market for a very long time if you want to do any kind of mass marketing or emailing system or anything like that. So this is, this is actually pretty huge. I think... There's now going to be more competitors. They're over. First of all, they're overpriced, and everybody knows it. I'm a Mailchimp user myself, and I'm blown away how much they force. <laughs> it gets very expensive, yeah. and and I think there's now starting to a lot of entrepreneurs are noticing this. And Twitter, by the way, just came out with a competing product, just as an example. And Twitter doesn't need to make money off of their version, and Mailchimp knows that. So that's going to disrupt their whole game. When somebody else comes in and is like, oh, that's great. You're focused on one small product, which is this, you know, MailChimp thing. Uh, that for us is one feature out of our whole suite. And we don't need to make money off of it. So we can undercut you. We can do it for half the price. And then your business is fucked. Like real big. That's That's the worry that, you know. Uh, somebody comes out and disrupt. That's the classic true disruption when invest when investors used to say, "Oh, what are you going to do when Google and Facebook and whoever come the Microsoft comes out and does this?" This is the kind of thing they're referring to. It actually doesn't happen that often, but this is a great example of where it is going to happen. People are going to really Spotify podcasts too are letting you take your customers and and ultimate your your mail mailing list. So. Well, the other thing is emails are become there's th there's that there's the fact that Twitter and others are about to undercut them, right? Because te technically, there's not a whole lot of secret black sauce going on here, like ninja level. There there isn't a huge moat here. Uh, defensibility, technical defensibility. There's it's overpriced. It's there's gonna people are gonna come in to that space. Mail email is becoming less important, and Apple and Google are going to start creating new types of um, obfuscators. Uh, the The role that email plays in email marketing is going to diminish quite significantly in the in the not distant future. So Mailchimp right now is the perfect time for Mailchimp to sell this hot potato ASAP. So they were very smart about you know six months ago when they started seeing the smoke signals over the horizon that uh, a whole bunch of bad things simultaneously are heading their way call the call the bankers oh time to sell this thing and they did and they found someone crazy enough to buy it magda it's also 
Yeah, it's also a little bit out of date. Like if you look at yep. the, you know, the kind of templates and things like that, like yep. marketing automation, things that are available in other email marketing providers, they're just much, much better. MailChimp, like it takes forever to set up emails on MailChimp, while like other solutions just, you know, you can plug it in, integrate it with Google Ads and like with other systems, and it just kind of sends automatically. You can set up beautiful templates that just kind of put everything together for you with just like a few graphics that you kind of put into it. And MailChimp just doesn't have that. So yeah, I think you're 100% right about it being like the perfect time to sell. Yeah. Kudos to them. Three founders, no, no investors. That's a lot of billions to uh, to split there. So the next big headline is uh, from the Washington Post. Joe Biden to nominate Georgetown law professor Alvaro Bedoya, who focuses on privacy issues, to be commissioner of the FTC. Al- Alvaro Bedoya has spearheaded pivotal research into how the government's use of facial recognition software hurts America's most marginalized. Oh, boy, I'm sure Charles will be thrilled um, that uh, the background of the new uh, uh, head of the FTC, commissioner of the FTC, their background is on (laughs) kind of being um, opposed to facial recognition. So it looks like facial recognition is going to get... going to have a hard time in the U.S. now that uh, the ch- commissioner of the FTC. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do think that there's a really compelling argument aside from the political standpoint, but solving the rape cases and, um, you know, catching the bad guys is, I think, is really cool. Um, so, yeah, it's I don't know. It's a little uh, disappointing and it's not more uh, rounded in its assessment in this article. Well, some, let's hopefully he does an interview all about that. Uh, that would be fantastic. The next one up is about yesterday. Well, about 12 hours ago, there was an announcement that Walmart was accepting Litecoin. And when we opened this room 12 hours ago, a May jumped in right at the start before the first headline to say, hey, some breaking news. Amazon's accepting Litecoin. And we were like, what the hell is Walmart? Walmart. What did I say? Amazon. Amazon, sorry. Well, yes, Walmart. Thank you, Cheryl. That Walmart's accepting Litecoin. And of course, that sounded very peculiar. And then Ben came in and said, it's fake news. And Ben had figured it out before the corrections had really come in. Ben found that the email address of the 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 announce, he looked at the announcement Noticed that the URL was a bit fishy. It was like the person behind it had left an email address of um, that was corpwalmart.com or whatever. And then he looked up the registration on that email address, the domain of that email address, which was only a month old, which is very strange. Walmart wouldn't have a month old um, domain and email address. And sure enough he was right and he said this is bullshit and uh and then while we were on and by the way reuters and cnbc both reported the fake news and it was basically what we call a pump and dump scheme which are unfortunately all too common in the crypto world somebody was trying to boost up litecoin and concocted a a scheme and a campaign a uh to do such and they 
wrote a fake pace, uh, press release uh, pretending they are Walmart and pretending that they are uh, uh, some executive at Walmart announcing this. And Reuters and CNBC reported it without doing what Ben did. So Reuters and CNBC have a little explaining to do about their level of journalism. Especially- that is a fascinating story. And, and I love the personal connection. I mean, Ben is like Mr. Nosebleed Detail. I just dive into it, knows it technically inside out, and just does his homework. I think that's awesome. I mean, just shows you the caliber of the people in this team. It's... Because he knows it doesn't make sense at all, not even business sense. So, I yeah, the only business sense I could make out of it was they would, uh, and I said this when we were meeting yesterday, was that is a coin where they could cause it to go up in value so they could buy a whole bunch of it, make the announcement, the coin goes up. It doesn't make any sense at all for in terms of using it as a currency to do anything with Walmart. The only thing it would make sense is if Walmart itself was pumping, and it's clearly a pump and dump of some kind. And I thought, well, maybe Walmart itself is pumping and dumping it <laughs> by attaching their name to a coin. It makes it go up. They bought all the coin before the announcement. It goes up 20%. They just made, however much they bought, say they bought a hundred million worth of Litecoin and it just jumped 20%. Well, they just made $20 million for five minutes work. So, yeah, you can do that. Anyone can do that. Any yeah, big but Walmart, Walmart will not tarnish your brand like that, doing such stupid things. True. Yeah, and I understand that. So that's, uh, but I, I agree. There was no legitimate business case for it, so it was confusing, and it was even more, uh, you know, more basic than that. It was just a classic pump and dump, and somebody found a was pretending to be Walmart. So kudos to Ben for figuring that out. And now the aftermath is, uh, it says Globe News Wire, the site where the hoax release was posted, said it came from a fraudulent user account. Yep. The Litecoin cryptocurrency saw its price spike by as much as 20% on Monday. The press release posted, uh, there was no evidence of any Security Exchange Commission filing, which would have been expected since Walmart is publicly traded. Walmart's official newsroom never in Included the release, and the company typically uses Business Wire to distribute releases. Dave Pleiss, or Pleiss, Vice President, Investor of Public Relations for Globe Newswire, said in an email to The Verge that this has never happened to the company before. So basically, also the service called Globe Newswire, who released this press release. Here's his comment. He says, when Globe Newswire became aware this morning that a fraudulent user account was used to issue an illegitimate press release, we promptly withdrew the press release and issued a notice to disregard. Okay, but by that point, it was too late. Reuters and uh, what was the other one? Um, CNBC had both passed it on. So the for those who don't know how it works is there are these wire services business wire is one of the biggest and normally when walmart has an announcement their pr team write up a little press release and then publish it to business wire and then all the journalists read all of the the endless stream of other pr teams submitting stuff to business wire that's the nature of news that's how the sausage gets made and in this case it didn't come from Business Wire, which is who Walmart usually uses. It came from a 
a smaller one called Globe Newswire, which I'm not familiar with Globe Newswire. Uh, but Globe's, Globe Newswire clearly doesn't do much uh, due diligence either on what comes out of their wire service. And it was a fake account who manufactured uh, a fake PR uh, press release. And there you go. They did go up 20%. And I imagine they made 20% on however much they were making on Litecoin. So... It says the company has already put into place enhanced authentication steps to prevent this isolated incident from occurring in the future, uh, Globe Newswire said, and was working with authorities on a full investigation, including into any criminal activity associated with this matter. So the IP addresses are under underfoot, and <laughs> and now we're going to find out just how, if the FBI is going to get involved, and how good of an IP obfuscation system these uh, the people behind this pump and dump scheme had. So were they using a Tor network? And will that be good enough to stop the FBI? Stay tuned to find out. <laughs> it's actually very interesting to find out. Will the FBI be able to find these people? And did these people use a Tor network or not? And will that stop the FBI? Worth knowing. Um, so... Yeah, that that. Hey, Tyler, yeah. while, while you're on CNBC, can I just make a, a quick comment? As something sure. else I did yesterday that directly impacts all the major tech stocks that most people follow, and this really bothered me, having you know, because knowing the market. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and I think it's really worth explaining for people who who invest in tech stocks and or any stocks, but th- these related to seventeen major tech stocks: Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, all of those. Okay. Goldman Sachs yesterday, quote unquote, initiated coverage on 17 st- uh, uh, tech stocks. Most of them were, of course, buys. One of them was neutral, which was uh, Snap uh, Chat, you know, and then two of them were sells, like Twitter and, and AirHub, uh, Airbnb. But the thing, the thing about it, and what people don't understand, and I'm, surp- I'm just really pissed me off that CNBC reported it because they've been doing this, you know, they, you know, they, they've been they're in business 30 years. They should know better. When, when a company initiates uh, a, a stock uh, stock coverage on 17 companies in a particular sector, as they did yesterday, Goldman did yesterday, it's not because all of a sudden they, they decided, like, hey, we weren't covering these companies, and now we are, and now we have an opinion on something. Obviously, uh, Goldman ha- had reports out on all these major companies like Facebook for you know, a long time. What happened is the analyst that was covering those companies left, okay? They hired a new analyst to, to pick up coverage, a guy from UBS actually, takes them, you know, two months, three months to, to you know, to do all of that. And and the way that Wall Street works is that when, when the analyst covering the, 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 the any, any given stock leaves, they suspend coverage. It's like an official suspension. We're suspending coverage because, and then the fact that they hired a new person who now all of a sudden has fresh recommendations, which are probably not all that different, you know. But, you know, there might be some differences. It's not like exactly newsworthy because it really isn't Goldman Sachs. They don't even mention the name of the analyst. It's because an individual analyst, a new one, decided, you know, th- these are his recommendations more than they are the firm's. And, and CNBC covered this like this was like kind of major news. And you'll notice yesterday, you know, Twitter was down and, and Airbnb was down because of this news. I don't think it would have been if he had if he had decided to put buys on them, they probably would not be down. But the other important point I really want to uh, make here 
is because, and Tyler, you, you'll remember this, the internet bubble. I'm sure you do. Some people do. Because of what happened during the internet bubble with um, certain, well, a lot of analysts recommending stocks, not because they really liked them, but because they were getting investment banking fees from the underlying companies, there was a big investigation by the then Attorney General of New York, Elliot Spitzer, um, about this thing. And so all of a sudden, some of the, these, all these major firms kind of found religion and, and they started grading stocks on what we, what we call in Wall Street, this is an unoffic- unofficial term, called the Spitzer Curve. And the Spitzer Curve basically means when you go out with a bunch of recommendations and everything, and usually an analyst only covers uh, stocks in a particular sector, in this case, this analyst covers the major tech stocks, um, they tell him or her, um, don't have a buy in every single one of them. You could have mostly buys, a couple of neutrals, and make sure you have at least one or two sells. Even if you don't really think that those are sells, you have to have one or two sells if you're going to pick up coverage. Um, so it, it, it's it's kind of jaded. And, and so I just don't like the way that it was done and, and, and the way that they reported it, like it was like, like, a, like a major news story. And I just wanted to point it out for people in, in, in the room that, you know, take all that stuff with a grain of salt a lot. Okay. okay. Thanks, Ken. So I'm, uh, Maria, I invited you up, but it seems you might need to bounce out and back in. <clears throat> um, when you can get new going to public. So uh, somebody made an interesting point about the Litecoin Walmart thing. Um, where did it go? The reason mainstream media publications drop this ball is simple. They generally don't pay attention to cryptocurrency, so they don't think to question why the fuck would they choose Litecoin? <laughs> Which people who do follow the crypto space, that was the first question. Like, why Litecoin? And I guess if you're a journalist and you don't understand how Litecoin is not that, in, that was the perplexing bit. That was the really weird bit. Um, and I guess there are so many companies announcing they're accepting cryptos these days that they took it at face value. But so the next headline from The Verge, it says, a look at the harsh reality of working for on-demand delivery apps in New York City. And my mouse just died. Including fluctuating pay and relentless time pressure and labor organizing efforts, which this article seems to be playing directly into the hands of, exploited by apps, attacked by thieves, unprotected by police, the city's 65,000 bikers have only themselves to count on. Um, And it's The Verge, you know, doing a piece about uh, the New York City Uh, Some interesting photos as well of them. It says they obey the bespoke instructions that pop up on their screens. Don't wait outside Benny's Burritos. Don't ask to use the restroom. Be super nice to dig in uh, because it's a very VIP client or have your account suspended. So that the writers get very detailed instructions from Grubhub and the likes about each place where they pick up because Grubhub and and Uber Eats and whatnot need to maintain good relationships. They compete for those uh, pickup restaurants. And if you as a bike rider go in and, you know, constantly ask to use their restroom, they're going to get pissed off and they're going to stop using Uber Eats if a bunch of Uber Eats drivers keep picking, you know, 
So they get a lot of interesting message and details about, you know, how to behave with each particular thing. And it's an, it's an interesting look. Uh, and The Verge, it's an interesting piece. It's more like a piece you would expect from The Atlantic, um, but not what you would expect from a tech blog. But quite nice. Yet it's uh, not surprisingly a bit negative against uh, tech in general, but all in all, a beautiful piece, honestly. Um, even There's a the- video there's a video in there as well that was very interesting for a few minutes and um yeah and 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 it kind of points out for you know maybe a lot of people just don't pay attention don't see but the the challenges the problems and some some of the safety issues that a lot of these delivery guys have and because uh, many of them now are competing with against other apps and they're just you know going out of their way to make sure that they get there faster so that the food or whatever they're delivering gets there on time and warm or, and uh, apparently uh, the interesting thing was that you know they were talking about their safety issues with a lot of them if they have to cross the bridge um, a lot of them will have these electric bicycles and they would get stolen. So what they wind up doing together was to set up groups, um, you know, at each entering point of the bridge so that they can all kind of cross over together. I mean, it's just kind of a, you know, it was interesting, but it also really um, gives you a glimpse into their daily and nightly in 12 hour shifts and, and the work that they do. I thought it was a, I thought it was a great piece. Yeah. It's in terms of wanting to get an understanding of what it's like from their world. It's really well done on that point. Um, and so kudos, it's, it's real, like I said, it's uncharacteristic of the verge or your typical tech product review blogs. It's like I said, it's much more like a, um, a New Yorker piece or an Atlantic piece of it. Vice would do. Yeah, I mean, it's even better than stuff Vice would do, uh, to be honest. So it's uh, worth checking out. So I just tweeted that one out. And then the next one is Ben uh, Ben Thompson, who does a tech blog called Stratechery. He says uh, he has done a breakdown of the Apple versus Epic decision, the court, big court case, which was a near total victory for Apple, he says, and the limitations of the injunction on the App Store anti-steering provision Bloomberg and a lot of people t- uh, have written about the the case. Antitrust lawyers say that the judge's recent ruling in the Epic versus, Apple versus Epic presents challenges for the Department of Justice's investigation, as Apple was not found to violate the Sherman Act. So the the, DO, the DOJ is going to have challenges um, as a result of that one. But Ben's tech blog, Stratechery. Uh, often does get uh, go a little bit viral on Twitter. So I'm tweeting that one out. And then the next one is from Bloomberg, that South Korea is fining Google $177 million for abusing its market dominance. Says Google prevented companies like Samsung from developing or using modified versions of Android. Uh-oh. South Korea just doing what America says it wants to do and regulate, you know, and push back on big tech. And South Korea is not screwing around and just going ahead and doing it on exactly the the, the correct issues, I would say. And, and this is a, an interesting one. It says, uh, companies said to have impeded development of soft of competing software. Regulator orders 
change to Google contracts with manufacturers like like Samsung. South Korea fined Google $177 million for hampering the development of rivals to its Android operating system, uh, sustaining a campaign targeting the U.S. search giant's dominance in smartphone software. Regulators accuse Google, whose mobile operating system, Android, powers more than 80% of smartphones around the world, of using its immense bargaining power to squeeze out the competition. The Korean Fair Trade Commission said Google's anti-fragmentation agreements with manufacturers like Samsung and LG, both Korean, prevented gadget makers like Samsung and LG from developing or using modified versions of Android. Which is, yes, this makes sense. The watchdog uh, banned Google from forcing manufacturers to sign these AFA contracts, these anti-fragmentation agreement contracts, and ordered that it modify existing ones. And of course, Google is going to claim, ah, but we need all of the Android operating systems globally to be friendly with each other. And if we let, and Android is open source. Anyone can take Android and build it and use it for their own purposes. Screw around with the code more or less to their heart's content for their, if you made a smartphone company called, you know, the, the Cheryl phone. And Cheryl Phone is like, well, we don't, you know, we are a hardware company. We make phones. Thank God there's this Android operating system we can use. Great. Take it. Use it. Fine. Mess around with it to your liking and use it for the Cheryl Phone. And then Google says, ah, well, if you want to use Android, you actually have to sign a few documents here. And one of them is this um, contract that basically uh, anti-fragmentation agreement, meaning you aren't going to edit it so much that it is no longer compatible with other Android devices. And that's where Korea is saying, no, you can't do that. Um, because these, you, you have to let people play, you know, if you're, if you're going to let it be open source, let these hardware manufacturers do what they want to do with it. You, you can't, you know, force them into using it in the way that you would like them to do. Cause now you have a monopoly. And you're exerting monopolistic powers that prevent them from doing what they want to do. Uh, to quickly summarize, so Korea in August became the first country to pass a law forcing Apple and Google to open their app stores out. This is a great example. One of the things you couldn't really change, they tried to change. They tr Samsung tried to put in a Samsung app store. And Google basically politically, uh, in a roundabout way, disabled that. So. Again, enhancing their kind of monopoly of having the only app store in Android. And you can imagine how uh, Google doesn't want another app store on Android. They want the Google Play Store and only the Google Play Store. So Korea notices what's going on here. And Korea is not letting these tech companies get away with it. Because Korea is looking out for Samsung and LG, which are their companies. And how Google's behavior relationship with Samsung and LG plays to the strengths of Google against Samsung and LG. And that's why Korea is able to make these changes in a way that the U.S. isn't, because Google's an American company. Samsung and LG is not. So American legislators are going to you know, do Google's bidding. Korean legislators are going to do Samsung and LG's bidding. And that's why it's not a surprise that this kind of stuff's coming out of Korea first. But that's what's scaring Google 
to pieces because next thing you know, uh, the Indian manufacturers, the, the J Japanese manufacturers are going to replicate this in short order because it's to the benefit of their hardware companies. And then it makes uh, America kind of puts them against the, in, paints them into a corner. So Google responded, or let me, let me finish that last paragraph where it says Korea in August did this uh, uh, forced Google to open up their app stores to outside payment systems, setting a potentially radical precedent for other lucrative operations elsewhere from India to the U.S. Yes, exactly. That bill became becomes effective September 14th. The Korea Communications Commission said in a statement, Tuesday's 207 billion won fine is one of the highest levied in the country over abuse of market dominance with only Qualcomm's mobile chips at drawing higher sanctions. Google responded by saying that Android has accelerated innovation, including among Korean companies, and improved the user experience and that it will appeal the decision. The KFTC's decision released today ignores these benefits and will undermine the advantages enjoyed by consumers, the company said in a statement. Okay, we'll see. So they're going to... Hey, how do you feel about these things as someone who's invested in a lot of companies, I mean, invested in a lot of tech companies and done startups that, you know, shareholders you know, invest in these things, these companies develop stuff, you know, Apple developed IO, uh, their, their operating system, Google, Google de developed Android, you know, why shouldn't they be able to do whatever they want with those operating systems? I mean, you know, when Nokia was in the phone business, they had their own operating system. When Microsoft was in the phone business, they had their own operating system. Samsung's a big company. They don't mm -hmm. like it. They should just create their own op operating system because it almo almost feels like, you know, like this, their, their, their work and their technology is being taken from them by, by these governments who's now saying you invested all, all this money in research and now we're just going to take it as public property and distribute it. You know, that's the way it looks like to me. You know? Yeah. I think they're just flexing a little bit because they know what they can get away with uh, in terms of Korea. What, what it is, is Samsung and LG, the Korean government wouldn't have a clue, right? It's clearly, it's the Korean government, or the, F, the agency, the FTC, the KFTC, who's doing this. But of course, they're doing it at the behest of Samsung and LG, who come to them and say, hey, you know what's going on? This is kind of bullshit. This is unfair. Um, I think we, we could push back on this. Why don't you help us push back on this? Right? I understand, I understand the politics, and I'm not even right. picking on Korea. I'm just saying even when you, you relate it back to the U.S. where these issues have come up with Epic and Apple, it, it's like, you know, a Apple developed it on, on, with their money. You know, no, mm -hmm. nobody's forcing you to be there. You know, you don't mm -hmm. want to go develop your own operating system, mm -hmm. develop your own operating system, and make your own phones. I mean, people used to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. That would be Google, Google, Google's countermeasure is to be like, no, we're, we're not going to allow you we just won't allow you to use our operating system and that so google could do that google google could no i guess they can't because they said it's open source so they can't do that they can't stop them from using it i was going to say if google had maintained ownership of it and said well if you uh you have to play by our rules or um i, I have to become more familiar with the um, 
the agreements around who's able to use Android. From what I understand, anyone is able to. Yeah, but every Android update doesn't every Android update come come that's from right. Google. Ah, that's a great point. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. If you want to continue to get the updates and whatnot, then you're going to have to. That's where they get you. Oh, that's clever. No, from from memory, I think the update security updates and stuff like that. I think um, Google devices are prioritized. So any like the Nexus stuff or that kind of anything that's built in house gets them first before they're released publicly. But I don't think this conversation is really about the OS, is it? What we're talking about is the Play Store, and that is still controlled by Google. And what you're talking about when you're discussing the OS is ease of access with an integration with the Play Store. And that's where Google is holding everybody by the balls, no? So it says here, the market dominance of Google in the mobile arena has solidified as a result of Google's obstruction of competitors, the Korean regulator said. Amazon and Alibaba failed to launch mobile operating system businesses, while Samsung and LG were not able to release devices such as smartwatches and speakers with new services on time due to Google Google's obstruction, according to the commission. In separately, the Korean uh, is investigating three other cases related to Google and competition restrictions in its Play Store app market, in-app purchases, and advertising market. I, if it continues to be a burden, yeah, I, I, I wonder uh, who might come up with another operating system or uh, you might see... We didn't, we didn't see this in Microsoft, though. Like with, when Microsoft had Windows, we did see Linux came out. Somebody came up and said, "Enough's enough. We're going to make Linux." Like right, and li- and Linux, by the way, which is open source. The difference with Linux and, and this is Linux. There are v- different versions of Linux on it. You know, Red Hat Linux is different than some other you know versions of Linux. So people could have different versions of, of it. You know. Yeah, but Linux is open source. Red Hat came out and said, "Ah, somebody's people are going to want a more updated, controlled." version of linux we're gonna we're gonna take this open source thing we're gonna continue to develop it make it more friendly to a lot of people who want that and many people did so there's a huge uh audience for red hat but in the maybe looking at history uh we're gonna see a linux for smartphones as a result of this because android's starting to look a lot like uh windows at this point what what windows was to desktops uh android's starting to become um, and these hardware manufacturers are starting to yearn for uh, a, an alternative, and that's where there's an opportunity for something like a Linux of smartphones. Shin, a hundred percent. The kernel, the kernel for for Linux is the same, and and Linus guards it like a lion. Uh, so that part is the same, but what the packaging and the focus, for example, if you want to optimize it for a desktop or a laptop where there's a screen and a mouse that will be different than a server where you're not going to have those and you're going to have a different set of requirements. So that kind of customization is uh, on the outer layers of Linux. And there's already multiple phone operating systems based on Linux and Android itself is all, I mean, everything at this point is based on Unix or Linux anyway. Yeah, but it's got to be a full package. Like you, ju- you can't just come in and be like, 
sure, to the sure. fire and everyone's yes. going to jump on it. You actually have to understand how to get that in front of people and get them excited about it. Like, And I yes. feel like that's really where the failure comes into play with most of these competitors. Right on, right on. And also with, with the phone especially, you need to have a real-time capability so that the phone and, and the things that you're doing are not interrupted as if you're on a desktop. Michael, are, are you getting excited? We're just how many hours away now? 10 hours away from the Apple event? I've been excited for 364 days. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's going to be fun. So we're going to live stream it at uh, 10 a.m. Pacific. I believe it starts as usual on Tuesdays. Yeah, I'll be here at, uh, I have uh, uh, some stuff I got to do in the morning, but I'll be here at 9.30 a.m. to stream it with you. Awesome. And uh, looking forward to it already. There's a whole bunch of other headlines here, like uh, Zoom is adding live translation services and will also bring Zoom meetings into Facebook's VR meeting space called Horizon Workrooms, which they announced, what was that, about two weeks ago? Michael, have you had a chance to play with the, you've got an Oculus, yeah? Have you tried the Facebook's uh, VR workspace? I have. Um, I like it. It's wonky, but it's new. So, and I think that, um, I definitely think there's a lot of potential. Um, and I think that what they're doing, that's, it's so weird, but I think they're, they're onto something with keeping their name as far away from Oculus as possible. And yeah, the face, the Facebook name is toxic and they did the same thing with the, the, the way the Ray-Ban glasses, like, there's not the the box comes. A friend of mine just got his delivery, and I just saw it on, uh, in his update today. There's no it. mention of Facebook on the box, like, and they've like as you perfectly said, they are intentionally keeping their brand away from that thing. They have to. They're they're too toxic. It's so weird how they could, like, they they're the biggest platform on the planet. How could Mark make such a big ass misfire where he he genuinely? He had plenty of chances to like put this back on the right course, and he just chose not to. I think the right assumption is that he means to do what he's doing. Michelle and you know is what's in the funny room. is that it's on brand, right? So it's on brand for Facebook not to be upfront. And so, yes, they need to do this. And yes, it, I mean, it's not surprising that you know they're being very stealth with how they are rolling this out. So this Zoom um, with the live translation is very cool. Uh, they also have they've added a whiteboard, but this also they're they're natively bundling it right into Facebook's VR meeting space. So when you're in the Facebook VR space, you can do as actual legit Zoom uh, call inside of the VR, which is kind of a cool partnership. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and there's going to have to be all, by the way, that that's the first of what is going to be an endless uh, partnerships of companies with Facebook's um, Oculus and their workspace. For example, you're going to potentially need, if Google doesn't develop their own competing hardware, or if Apple doesn't com- make their own competing hardware, hint, hint, of course they're going to, but... You now understand how important the hardware is. Facebook understands the importance of hardware more than anybody because they uh, realize Apple and Google have all the power 
because they have the actual hardware, the smartphones. Facebook doesn't have a smartphone. They tried. It didn't work. And so Facebook is ultimately their business is in some ways um, controlled by the the hardware maker. Whoever has the hardware at the end of the day wins. And that's Apple and Google. Now in VR, Facebook has the hardware, Oculus. And that's why Zoom has to partner with Facebook. And if if the future is VR and the future is the metaverse and Facebook has the hard the default hardware of the metaverse, then you're going to have to partner with them to be in part of in their platform, in their hardware. Can you imagine? Do, do you think that they thought this through, Tyler? Like what I mean by that is based on what we just said, I wonder if he if they know that Facebook is as toxic as they as it is. And as a result, oh, totally new v, VR would be the future and purchase Oculus so that they could control that and stay away from their own name. Yeah, I think so. But they could have named it Facebook Oculus, and I'm sure there was thoughts of doing that. And they realized they shouldn't, that Oculus has a better name than Facebook does. The The point I'm trying to make, though, is, is that in the future, will Google Docs... People are going to want Google Docs in their uh, uh, VR experience, Right. And they're going to want other Apple or maybe Apple never got so far with Apple Office or their Apple Keynote. And well, Keynote's pretty good, actually, but like uh, uh, Numbers and their Notepad or whatever. Yeah, but Microsoft Word inside of your VR space or all all the other apps. I mean, how what other apps? You know, listening to music inside of Facebook, they're going to par- partner with Spotify because Facebook and Spotify are very close buddies. And I imagine they might already have. If they haven't, I, I no doubt they are working on that. So you can now see how lots of apps are now going to have to become friendly and kiss uh, Zuck's ring to get into Oculus if Oculus continues to be the front runner in the vr space and now you know why facebook said we are a metaverse company we are running full steam with this because we we want everyone to come and kiss our ass now we lost it on the smartphone and but we have a golden opportunity to be the front runner and play you know be be build this whole ecosystem so here comes zoom and now zoom's partnering you know to play in actively inside of Facebook. And that's a win-win for both of them. Zoom can ride, you know, if you're the first app inside of these new ecosystems, same thing happened with the iPad. Every, every time a new platform comes out, if you're one of the first apps on that platform and Zoom's one of the first apps in this new VR platform, then they just gain market share. So um, it'll be interesting to see yeah. how, how that plays yeah, out. The, the, timing is, the timing is really interesting because I remember in Davos 2019, so January 2019, in the Facebook um, house, if you will, that they rented on the promenade, there was an Oculus experience. So it, it's really interesting that here we are, what, two and a half years later, that now this is really gaining traction. Yeah. I'm just I'm just very curious to see because, you know, I've had to deal with translations on, on two or three different languages and, and uh, also, you know, my own. So I foresee a lot of colorful, to say the least, meetings uh, on Zoom if there's going to be, you know, real-time translations as they're seeing. So, I mean, it's, you know, hopefully the more it gets used, the, the better it becomes. But I, I, can, I am living proof of some really, really funny 
problems or mistakes that have come through these translations and, and when it comes to business and and um, you know it's interesting to see how they're going to deal with it so but it's so needed i mean it is so needed i can't tell you how often i'm dealing with situations where i would need to have real-time translations whether it's in meetings or whether it's in you know in uh, uh interviews or or live sessions or anything else i mean it is absolutely so much needed so when i saw that i thought it was just fantastic but it's also i can guarantee you there's going to be some uh, some pretty funny moments in there i think that i think when it be i think the time that it will become it's most valuable is when because i'm sure you know this already as you just said you it, it is an invaluable tool but we actually have to think about how to most simplify the thing we're trying to get across to make sure that the software will accurately or with some degree of accuracy translate that to who it is we're trying to speak to. And I think once it gets to a point where we can speak naturally and have it come across, that's when it's really going to blow up as a market as well. Yeah, and uh, to that point, uh, Tyler, Facebook and Spotify have had partnership for, for a long time. In oh, April, yeah. they did an integration of an app and everything. So No, Spotify, Spotify in some part got started because of Facebook. The people in America first discovered Spotify through Facebook, through that partnership with Facebook. And they, yeah. They, yeah, which that was a genius, genius partnership enabled by uh, Sean Parker, who's very close uh, with Mark Zuckerberg and, and was a huge fan of Spotify because he tried to do Napster. And when he saw Spotify, he's like, ah, shit, you're doing what we really should have done with Napster. And there's a famous email of him gushing uh, that he wrote to Daniel Ek. And, uh, and then he connected the two and they, they've been, it was a real win-win. So the next article. What a, what a, what a cool guy, Tyler, who can recognize the success of others and celebrate it rather than have star grapes, just to put a marker yeah. on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Sean's wicked smart dude, by the way, like crazy brilliant. Um, then and you know eccentric, uh, no doubt. But uh, the next one from NBC News that Instagram says Saint Hoax, an influ- an Instagram influencer with nearly three million followers, will live stream from this year's Met Gala, which just happened, uh, the red carpet as its first ever meme correspondent. And the Met Gala red carpet, this this is one of the New York City's biggest social events of the year, if not the biggest, at, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art there near Central Park. And uh, it's a very swanky event, and it's a who's who of New York uh, who's invited to the event. And there's a red carpet in, you know, it's New York's version of, you know, the Oscars or whatnot. So there's a red carpet with photographers and people dress up and... Uh, so the idea that Instagram has one of its influencers as the meme correspondent is really quite interesting, honestly, because now it's um, in some ways head to head with traditional news outlets. And somebody might make the point that, well, does this mean Instagram is now a publication? The, the I mean, they're, kind of acting, taking a role of naturally, they're staying at arm's distance by having this meme correspondent. Well, meme correspondent to who? To Instagram? Instagram's going to live stream it? Is Instagram profiling it at the top of the Instagram app so that everyone who opens Instagram during 
the red carpet session sees a live stream of the event well now are you not they acting cannot, like a news publisher they, by doing that which they, they not really do it but if they do it um, in conjunction with the Met gala account then the exposure is huge so right this guy get his um, audience plus anybody else who joins the live so they can do i think connect four accounts uh, concurrently and that's how they can stream uh, but uh, kind of going back to your point like you know Facebook is not a brand. People like uh, young young audience is not on Facebook anyway, so they are only on TikTok and Instagram where they get all of their news um, and all of their uh, content. So um, it probably you know I they would never. I think it's on the Instagram account on Instagram or... actually. It's like if you look at the stories, that's that's where they're talking about the Met Gala. So I guess they're just doing it from their own account. Yeah, but my, the the point I'm making is is if Instagram profiles this individual and their live stream it's it's starting to feel a little bit like a t what used to be tv people used to turn on tv and watch nbc would have a correspondent on the red carpet who would interview the people coming by say again wasn't it joan collins and her daughter yes exactly it was joan collins exactly right so and by the way that was good tv but um interesting to see that instagram's stepping into that role and it's a social media app acting like a tv what the role that a tv network played historically in these types of situations and it, there's an interesting legal consideration here which is um this whole section 230 thing is you're not a publisher you're a platform if you start being a publisher which is what you know new magazines or or newspapers most notably uh, but even TV, TV is edited. TV is highly curated. And if you start functioning in that way, well, then um, you're responsible for everything that gets said on your platform, be it your TV station. And that's why TV stations get in deep doo-doo when somebody uses the F word. Uh, and that's why they delay their live streams, you know, by eight seconds so they can remove and beep out people saying those things because they get in deep shit when people say things they shouldn't say. And so now is Instagram getting one step too far into being a publisher where they will lose their platform protections, platforms that, you know, uh, 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 telephone networks enjoy. Anyone can say anything. They don't have to delay your phone call and beep your phone calls. They're a platform. They're not a publisher. They're not an editor. Instagram currently is considered to have the platform protections, but here they're starting to take steps towards being more of a publication. If they would push it out to everyone, that would be so, but they're only doing it on their own account, which, yeah, it has like a huge reach because it has 422 million. But, you know, like it's still like a creator account on Instagram, which is called Instagram, which is doing it. It's not like it's being pushed to everybody everywhere. Right. So I guess maybe that's kind of the way that they want to get around it. Yeah. So just tweeting this one out. So from NBC News, so you can get a looky look at that. It will be interesting to see how they continue to evolve that because they could replicate that in other verticals with other major influencers. So if they have major big sports influencers, they could cover live sport events. If they have, uh, you know, uh, what's, what's other popular verticals of live TV coverage. Yeah. Anyway, maybe they have a news 
so, somebody's covering tech news <laughs> that they would feature in a live stream. Who knows? Concerts. So, yeah. Um, so Bloom, the next one up is that Bloomberg's just reporting that edu- ed tech software companies Blackboard and Anthology are merging. Sources say that the combined value of about $3 billion, terms of the deal were not disclosed. Blackboard is huge in ed tech, and apparently Anthology is as well, and combined they are now worth $3 billion. Ed, ed tech's such a huge space as a result of COVID, of course. Already was, but COVID really put rocket boosters on that whole thing. The next one is from TechCrunch says, BitSight, which assesses the likelihood that organizations will be breached by hackers, ostensibly, uh, raises $250 million at a $2.5 billion valuation. And, yep, cybersecurity is another incredibly huge booming space because there's a whole lot of hackers. The next is from Bloomberg, Mark Gurman, what to expect from the Apple event coming in just about um, 10 hours from now. So we are eagerly awaiting that live stream that we will do. Hopefully you can join us. And uh, no need to remind everyone what's expected. Um, The the next one is from VentureBeat. Maryland-based cyber risk management company Tenable has agreed to acquire infrastructure as a code. Uh, Who cares? Uh, The next one, a Dutch this is from Politico, that a Dutch judge rules that Uber drivers are employees, not self-employed. So Uber will have to pay drivers by or pay drivers by the rules of the taxi industry's collective labor agreement in the Netherlands. And no doubt they'll try to appeal that, and that'll take time. And the question is, will it be enough time to replace those drivers with autonomous vehicles in the year that it takes to... <laughs> draw out that legal battle. And it might, because there's several cities now, including San Francisco, where Waymo's doing autonomous uh, taxis. So why not Amsterdam? That's my prediction. I bet Uber and these cars companies announce autonomous uh, well, th- it'll get very interesting. Will Amsterdam allow that? What <laughs> what happens when Uber says, okay, yeah, well, let's have an appeal, and this appeal is going to take a year, and oh, by the way, somehow, cleverly, we're rolling out autonomous taxis while that appeal is going on. What will Amsterdam then say when they roll out uh, separately, separate agency? This is not a court. This is just some some agency that has to obviously approve autonomous vehicles in Amsterdam. I'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I, how else? Yeah, of course, that's what we're, we're right there. There's already multiple cities already doing autonomous vehicles, including busy big city like New York City has an autonomous car company with crews. Waymo's doing it in San Francisco. Is Europe not going to allow? Well, Europe is going to allow. I mean, Germany is gung-ho on autonomous cars, by the way. They're they're excited to claim to be, they're going to be the first to fully, it's going to be fully legal with uh, autonomous level four. And what gets interesting is in the case of Waymo in San Francisco, there still is technically a human in the car, but they're not driving the car. They're just sitting in the seat. So are they considered an employee? <laughs> I don't know. They're not driving the car. They're just sitting in the driver's seat. It's a really gets very legally uh, gray area here. But 
the we're getting so close to the autonomous thing that this Uber, I can't, it's hard to believe that this Uber, uh, um, class, you know, employee debate is still happening. They're, they're going to be replaced very soon by autonomous cars or the Amsterdam, the Netherlands is going to have to say, no, we're not going to allow autonomous cars or autonomous taxis. Oh, really? I can see Denmark doing that. Denmark's kind of interesting. Denmark is very like, we are looking out for what's better for employees and people. And uh, they're more than happy to kick out technologies that they feel are going to threaten jobs. So keep an eye on how Denmark handles these things in the, looking forward. But I, I'm really curious to see how this plays out with Amsterdam. So the Do next, you think part of there's mm-hmm. going to be something in the meantime because, like you know, back to the Dunkin' Donuts, you know, there's, there used to be like there's 15 people there and then there's three and then they had to shut it. Yeah, you, I wonder like um, if these companies are just going to act in their own interests, i.e., discretionary pay rises in the meantime just to keep the lights on the operation while all of this stuff ripples through. You know, so I don't know, just a thought about the skills shortage to link in here, right? Hmm. Um, just looking at some of the tweets, another blow to the gig economy's misclassification scheme. Uber drivers in the Netherlands will now be entitled to labor agreements set by the Dutch taxi industry, who certainly don't. If so, the, the Dutch taxi industry is no fan of Uber. They want to kill Uber. And so this is their way of trying to force Uber out of Amsterdam which it likely will do. Uber is likely to say, ah, okay, now we have to count them as employees. Well, we're not going to do that for multiple reasons. A, because if we do, then every other city in the world is going to force us to do the same. So no, we're not willing to do that. We'll just happily leave your little tiny town of Amsterdam. No no problem. So um, that's likely to be the effect as Uber leaves or they roll out the autonomous cars and then the taxi group has a whole new shitstorm to deal with so you know that level four thing Tutter, like is that that's the lane part of it is it like it goes up on these levels to fully autonomous isn't that the kind yeah. of level five is fully autonomous on right. every everywhere 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 level four is it functions but you need to make accommodations for it basically and that's we're getting quite close to that. Some some of the autonomous car companies are getting quite close to that. Close enough that San Francisco and New York are letting them operate on the roads. So, and those are major, major crazy cities. I mean, not by Asian standards, but by Western standards. Um, so, let's see what, what Europe does. Um, the next one is a report that China and Russia are stepping up efforts to control or influence undersea internet cable routes, rising concerns of backdoors and traffic interceptions. Authoritarian governments, particularly in Beijing and Moscow, are stepping up their efforts to buy or influence companies responsible for laying the undersea cables that shuttle online communications between countries and servers, according to a report released on Monday. Submarine cables are the backbone of the internet, and the, and the concern is that the undersea cable companies, either owned or influenced by Beijing or, and Moscow, could be forced to compromise security by inserting backdoors or allowing intelligence agencies to monitor landing stations in order to intercept traffic. According to the Atlantic Council's Cyber Defense Across the Ocean Floor, 
the majority of global undersea cables, about 59%, are still deployed and maintained by private companies, and a little less than 20% of the cables deployed around the world as as at the end of last year are either made or maintained by state-owned or state-controlled entities. But that appears destined to change. There is just a huge expansion of submarine cables around the world, says Justin Sherman, the author of the report. Uh, In 2016, there were 15 new cables that went into service around the world. In 2020, the number of new cables that were deployed was 28, which is phenomenal growth and shows just how much more dependent we are on this infrastructure. According to Sherman, Chinese companies are planning some 44 different undersea cable projects this year alone. Some of the programs are part of the Chinese President Xi Jinping's $1 trillion Belt and Road Initiative, which aims to finance infrastructure projects in dozens of countries, and others are closer to home, such as the project to run internet traffic through Hong Kong. The Because Hong Kong's, I believe, you know, still seems to operate on the Western internet, and China's going to need to control that in the very near future, as I've mentioned many times. The Chinese companies entering the underwater cable space include a who's who of mainland telecom operators, China Mobile, China Telecom, China Unicom, and Huawei, all of which either own, maintain, or build part of China's undersea cable network. China will have a good will have good prices, but they have a fundamental problem, says James Lewis, senior vice president at the Director of Technology and Public policy program at the Center of Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. If you use China stuff, I think everyone knows there's a good chance they'll spy on you. Do you feel comfortable with China having physical access over your cable access or your company network? The answer should be no. In Russia, companies like the state-owned company have dropped undersea cables to connect outlying Russian islands to the mainland and Europe, and the company's CEO made clear that it was just to start. In a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, he said publicly that his company has ambitious plans for building up internet infrastructure around the world. There are at least three Russian undersea cables set to be deployed this year, according to Sherman. U.S. officials have already recognized what's at stake. Last year, the FCC denied a cable license for Pacific Light Cable Network, a submarine cable project that brought together Google, Facebook, a New Jersey-based telecom, and a Hong Kong-based telecom owned by a Chinese firm. The FCC and the Department of Justice objected to the project because of what they saw as a national security risk. The Justice Department said it was concerned that Beijing would use the network to collect information on Americans and might eventually try to divert traffic through Hong Kong in order to control and exploit data with it. The focus on espionage opportunities under the seas isn't theoretical. The U.S. and the U.K., among others, have a long history of tapping undersea cables for for information. Back in the 1970s, the NSA launched Operation Ivy Bills, which involved using attack submarines and divers, dropping waterproof recording devices on underwater cables running near major Soviet naval bases in the Kuril Islands. Every couple of weeks, divers would drop back down to the cables and retrieve the recording devices, and the intelligence they captured. The operation went on for years until an NSA employee named Ronald Penton told the KGB about the program. He was arrested in 1985 and served 30 years in prison before being released in 2015. Now a lot of that can be done virtually without the divers, which is what worries officials. Tapping underwater cables is hard. Exploiting landing stations where the data passes through is less so. It is easy to think about the internet on an abstract level because of the cloud and cyberspace, the Atlantic Council Sherman said, but it still depends on routers and cables 
and that impacts how data goes around the world. This is important because if you have more data traveling through your cables or your country, you have more opportunities for espionage. Hey, Tyler? Yes. I was wondering, has anybody looked at satellite internet's possibility of providing uh, internet connection worldwide? I mean, I, my understanding is that it's, it's used as a sort of a, a niche product now for desert or the ocean. But I was wondering whether in terms of capability, there will be one, one day the satellite capability could be a, a mainstream, therefore rendering the undersea cable really obsolete. Um, the, it, that might happen. That could is likely to happen eventually. Uh, it could be a while. Uh, satellite providers today take a, a, a posture that they are meant to fill in the gaps not serviced by cabled internet. But over time, I think it will continue to gain ground on um, use cases that are today provided by wire. Yeah, it just seems to me... Yeah, I'll, I'll just very quickly, Keisha. It just seems to be the the possibility of all earthquake undersea, you know, whales or you know, just kidding. But in terms of maintenance of these undersea cables, oh. it's really quite cumbersome. You need you you, you don't need to make jokes here. Here, uh, Lakeisha, I don't think has yet to experience <laughs> it. But we here in the islands of Thailand, it's not uncommon for boats to drag anchors and break the cables. <laughs> So anyway, but the, the, the backup for the satellite could be relatively easily, you know, in terms of redundancy. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lakeisha. No, no, no need to apologize. And, and I think that it's a more sustainable, you, you know, what you've presented is a more sustainable option as well, because, you know, it's not disrupting the, you know, the, the, the life underwater, if you will. But, you know, I was going to comment in the article that Tyler just read, you know, they mentioned that Facebook and Google you know, were declined, or they had intended to connect uh, California to Hong Kong. And I believe Taiwan was also part of that initial plan, but the FCC rejected it. But a couple of months ago, maybe I am not sure my, my timing is always a, a bit off. But in the recent past, I know that um, they've begun um, talks, at least in advancing talks in connecting Guam and Indonesia and Japan and Singapore via this Facebook and Google partnership. So it, it's really interesting because even though, you know, these are private companies, you know, I see this through a geopolitical lens as well, just given everything else that's happening in the world. And just, just another quick point on that, in terms of uh, extraterrestrial uh, jurisdiction, you know, having uh, the internet being up in the sky, in the space, if you will, seems to be a one possibility to resolve some of this territorial territorial issues like who owns the internet you know this goes to the philosophy of internet should be owned by the humankind i mean it's this sounds a bit of a far reach but at least it's a direction to to look into and the capability i believe with the satellite internet there they could get to 100 megabyte per bits uh, 100 uh, mbp so that's actually quite decent you know yeah, obviously that, not as good that's as already one, being but, improved the new laser ones go up to 650 megabits per second yeah there you go so anyway just something to think about yeah so, yeah for those who don't know the you know Starlink, SpaceX Starlink is kind of the leader in this today where they have over 100,000 users and they're expecting um, hundreds of thousands more in the near future. 
and they are doing about a hundred megabits per second um, internet, but they've from from what I understand and. I would love to be corrected is that they're pausing because of the upgrading of satellites to handle laser, which will allow for 650 megabit per second transmissions, which make it in many ways superior to even fiber optic in terms of its ability to send a signal from say, you know, to circumnavigate the equator to do that on cables on the ground. Um, it would in some ways go faster via satellite than it would through actual cable, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, but next biggest headline out of the big stories, we're pretty much through the big stories. Um, Financial Times says they have sources that Beijing wants to break up Alipay. Um, and also the Financial Times says after a meeting with Chinese regulators, Tencent and Alibaba, who is the owner of Alipay, pledged to make their apps and services compatible with each other. And my my conspiracy theory there is that Alipay and WeChat Pay are going to um, soon, ad- they're already no, it's already been reported that they're trialing the, the Chinese central bank digital currency. And I'm very curious to see when that trial will conclude and they adopt that to roll that out. Uh, an interesting one from billboard.com just coming in that uh, according to the RIAA, which is the Recording Industry Association of America, they, they're the, the collective music business agency. Or, um, they say that music streaming revenue, which is Spotify basically, uh, grew 26% year over year, which is quite good. And, and in the first half of the year to about $6 billion dollars comprising 84% of all revenue is now happening through the streaming game. Uh, paid subscriber revenue grew 26% to also about 5 billion. Ad supported grew 54% to 741 million. To which they're now realizing, you know what, Spotify, you were right. <laughs> the future is streaming. Sorry we gave you so much of a headache for so many years, refusing to participate, and you've saved our ass. Otherwise, it would be Napster and would, you know, holy cow. And God bless the Swedish uh, music labels and Paris Sundin at Universal, very notably, for allowing Spotify, uh, you know, for helping, cooperating with Spotify, I should say, to enable that and giving them the data. And they recognize the future, that the future was streaming and they didn't fight it in Sweden. And that's why Spotify is from Sweden, unlike the American record labels who did fight Spotify and didn't want to participate. And now they're thanking the Swedish record labels and the Swedish tech companies who saw the future and went ahead with it and brought them kicking and screaming into it. So the next one I think it's because, you know, I think that they had lost billions and I think Ken can probably attest to that as well. Unfortunately they had lost billions and now they're finally starting to kind of bring some of that back with some of the new technologies, identifying um, music snippets, maybe even under, you know, eight seconds or ten seconds or before they weren't monetized. A lot of the newer companies are able to uh, identify it, see it, and bring that, uh, you know, bring that money back in towards the record companies and the artists. So they're kind of starting to now just, you know, gain back uh, what they had lost in the years before. So that 
The next one from the New York Times says that the FEC documents show that it has dismissed accusations by Republicans that Twitter violated election laws by blocking a New York Post article about Hunter Biden. And boy, was that a big issue at the time. Um, but basically, it's been dismissed. The accusations by Republicans that Twitter violated election laws has now been dismissed by the Federal Election Committee, the FEC. So that issue's done with. And the next one's uh, from the Financial Times, a company called Cape, a UK-listed digital privacy company controlled by billionaire Teddy Sagi, buys rival ExpressVPN. And this whole VPN space is going to get really interesting in the next few years. Uh, TechCrunch says that Spot On, a payments company focused on small and medium businesses, raises $300 million, led by Andreessen Horowitz at a three point one five billion valuation. Israeli startup Resilien, which offers automated tools for dev security ops, raises thirty million. And Apple's booming iPhone twelve sales have been driven in part by attractive offers from carriers to boost five G contracts, raising questions about how long such deals will last, which is a fair point. And Coinbase says it plans to raise one point five billion through debt offering. And that is your big headlines. Now we get into what we've all been waiting for, which are the juicy tweets. Uh, Like this one, Ken sent in from Wall Street Journal that China tells the Internet companies to stop blocking links from each other, uh, which we just that was also one of the big stories we discovered. Evan sends in this one from Rolling Stone that anti-vaxxers are now gargling iodine to prevent COVID-19. Although Rolling Stone was, you know, kind of been got themselves in a bit of hot water on their reporting about hospitals and uh, uh, emergency units and how full they are and whatnot. And people, uh, the anti-vax community, or even just a lot of people are not trusting Rolling Stone's reporting on COVID issues. But what they're reporting now is anti-vaxxers are gargling iodine. COVID skeptical anti-vaxxers are suggesting that betadine, a typical antiseptic, could prevent COVID. The next one from Heyman, I love this one, that researchers have now toilet trained, or potty trained really, they're not actually using toilets, but researchers have potty trained cows to reduce ammonia emissions. Researchers are potty training cows to go to the bathroom where their feces and urine can be collected and treated, reducing ammonia emissions. Why didn't we think of this before? Getting the cows to go to specific areas to control their uh, bio movements. That's kind of brilliant. Cows are smart enough to do that. I guess the reason is we didn't want to acknowledge the cows are smart enough to do that because if we're if we acknowledge that cows are smart enough to be potty trained, then we uh, realize we're consuming intelligent animals might 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 that be the the reason i don't know uh but that's an interesting headline the next one from rcc says that general motors invests in a radar software startup called oculi with two eyes a little too close to oculus um and as demand for autonomous automated driving features rise well yeah uber is in the market for some more automated driving as a you know this whole new court case in the netherlands 
Oculi is a software startup that aims to improve the spatial resolution of radar sensors for autonomous vehicles by up to 100x. And so they've scored new investments from General Motors, not surprisingly. The next one from the South China Morning Post, China's former central banker blasts venture capitalists for fanning the winner-takes-all in the digital economy. Cash-burning strategies funded by venture capital firms have led to anti-competitive behaviors, says China's former central bank governor. The comments echo Beijing's call to prevent the disorderly expansion of capital. And he says, various types of venture capital funds, including angel investors, have helped establish and grow new forms of business at the same time. However, they may have also fostered anti-competitive behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, capitalism is kind of anti-competitive. Or it's highly competitive to the degree where they can take things a little too far, as we are reading about in South Korea with Google. Um, that's kind of what happens. People start making billions and they start protecting themselves. That's that's part of how it works, yes. So I, I would tend to agree with China's uh, central former central banker to an extent there. Then the next one sent in by Aral um, that Facebook created a secret elite tier of users who didn't have to follow content rules. We covered this earlier. It says the the program had nearly 6 million users. They're calling it a program. I think Facebook should come out with their own statement on this and and say what's going on from their perspective. Because if they don't, people are going to continue to amplify and create conspiracy theories about this quote-unquote program. Uh, I imagine it's not nearly as nefarious as people are making it out to be. Um, Michelle, has there been any comments from Facebook in re- response or reaction to this? these headlines about this VIP list? Uh, sorry, I was on mute. Um, not, not yet, and there's not much I can comment on. Yeah, but I imagine they will comment on because I think there's there's not much here. I imagine they'll explain it in their own context and it will diminish the conspiracy theories that will ne- inevitably creep up if they don't address it. So, um, Yeah, I'm sure the team will uh, probably address it if yeah. they deem it yeah. relevant. Mm-hmm. So the next one's from Evan, that seriously ill COVID-19 patients double in vaccine pace setter Singapore. That seriously ill COVID-19 patients double in Singapore, which is a leader in vaccines. So why is there now uh, patients, seriously ill patients doubling in Singapore? That's unfortunate and concerning. Yes, very yeah. concerning. Yeah. The next one from Evan from South China Morning Post, that U.S. senators call Chinese IoT firm a security threat and request sanctions. And not surprisingly, Republicans. Three Republican senators say that Tuya, 
is required by law to turn Americans' data over to Beijing and frequently cited concerns in the U.S. Tuya denied the claim, saying its user data is regionally isolated and has never been requested by foreign governments. Uh, three U.S. senators are urging the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to sanction Chinese Internet of Things company Tuya Smart, calling on New York-listed company a national security threat that undermines Americans' privacy. Republican Senators Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, and Tom Cotton say that the Chinese company is required to share user data with its government under the country's data security law, which went into effect this month. In a public letter published on the U.S. Senate's website on Friday, China's legal data sharing requirements have been an often cited national security concern in the U.S. Cyber and national security experts have already raised significant concerns about how Tuya's lack of protections over users' data the senators wrote. However, there is also a more basic reality that the PRC, um, as the PRC company, Tuya, is obligated to comply with the Communist Party's orders, including requests to share American and other users' data with Chinese government. To do nothing, the senators argued, would mean continuing to provide Beijing a lot of direct lines to Americans' private data, helping the country's exploit of IoT vulnerabilities. Tuya said the senator's claims were without merit because the company isolated all, has isolates all user data regionally, including in the U.S. Tuya has never received a request from one of the country from one country's government to share user data from another. And we take compliance with all security and privacy laws seriously and strive to abide by the laws in all markets where we operate, including the United States and China. Tuya is prepared to aggressively defend itself against any claims to the contrary. Tuya operates an IoT cloud platform that connects a wide range of smart devices. Yes, uh, Tyler, my information is a couple of years old, but Tuya back then was uh, a little bit too nosy in the kind of information that it would ask, personal information, that it would ask customers and wouldn't appear important for the application. And there was a fear that the data was in fact being shipped elsewhere. There was also a report that the way they would onboard devices and the way they would ask you for your Wi-Fi password and such was not in a way that was secure and it would stay within the device and your phone. Uh, so there were there were a bunch of issues about that. So there is there seems to be something there in my mind. Mm-hmm. Then Zoom to integrate with Facebook. We covered that one. Thank you, Nicholas. Simon from South Africa who's in the audience sends in this one that South Africa is testing central bank digital currencies. The move could affect other central banks around the world to work towards using the technologies. South Africa's recently announced trial of central bank digital currencies for cross-border payments could motivate other financial institutions around the world to work towards using the technology. The next one from Neda about our mammoths coming back, woolly mammoths. And this is in relation to a new startup um, that just got $15 million. It's no ordinary startup because uh, part of the team is George Church, who's the world's leading genomicist, who can do literal magic with genetic material, making living cells out of non-living material in his lab at Harvard, where he's uh, it really is a, a bit of a Michelangelo of genetics. 
and they're they've said they're going to bring back the woolly mammoth uh they feel like it will play a role in um in climate change now that the permafrost is melting so it's a really yeah they're they're saying of course we're going to bring it back it's not an issue it's piece of cake <laughs> so will be interesting to see i guess they're going to have to in vitro fertilize a an elephant with the woolly mammoth um embryo what i thought it was really also interesting funny um tyler was when he said well why couldn't they you know why didn't they bring back the the dinosaurs or the t-rex and he says well, one of the reasons was that these are vegetarians so they're a little you know they're not uh, they're not interested in uh in being um you know, meat eaters. So I thought that was an interesting point that he also made in it. Yeah, there's a lot of vegetarian dinosaurs as well, though. So let's bring those back first. Most of them. <laughs> yeah. So the Evan sends in a really strange one. A mysterious unmanned vessel was just spotted in San Diego Bay. It looks like a solar-powered, um, very low-profile catamaran with a lot of interesting dishes, um, telecommunication devices, um, probably satellite, and it appears to be fully solar-powered. Quite interesting. I imagine they're going to pull that thing. Oh, well, there's a link. Let's check it out. So it says, this mysterious unmanned vessel was just spotted in the San Diego Bay. The low-slung drone ship catamaran is equipped with solar panels, various antenna, and camera systems. Yeah, so pull that thing over. The U.S. Navy, and by the way, San Diego Bay is covered in, <laughs> that's the U.S. Navy's right there. It's like one of the biggest Navy bases on the planet. So uh, that would be a, a very bold thing to do from a foreign government. The U.S. Navy is accelerating its unmanned surface vessel initiatives seemingly on all fronts while much of the latest integration testing of this new concepts with a range of tiny remote controlled boats so to far larger missile toting optionally manned surface vessels have occurred off the southern california some of these capabilities will soon be put to the test in the middle ah so this is probably a u.s navy vehicle itself which makes a lot of sense it's a drone it's a drone catamaran, solar-powered, so it can just keep on cruising. Oh, and they show it's... You, you can imagine it's silent but deadly, like no engine sign, just cruising along. Yeah, it goes up to 13 knots. That's quite fast. Withstands three-foot waves, so it's not designed for very rough seas. Designs to fit in a container for shipment anywhere in the world. And roughly eight, 18 feet long, fully solar-powered. Ah, they did pull it out of the water. Looks pretty cool. Thank you for that one. So the next one's from Cami. A Montreal firm develops tech that allows customers to power their homes using their electric cars. Canadian smart home energy tech startup Decibel, or DC Bell, has developed an intelligent home charger that both fast charges cars and allows the car to use what in Tesla parlance we call camping mode which allows you to use the battery power for things other than driving the car. And indeed, your car's battery is generally large enough to power your home um, through the evening. 
So if you came home around 6 p.m., you could, if you're uh, in many contexts, uh, power your home during the evening uh, till the next morning. So you could get free power? Well, if you go to an office where you charge your car up while you're at work, then you could come home and use the car's power to power the house. That's kind of like stealing the bathroom tissue out of, out of your house, but in a much more legal way, I guess. Significant way. Significant way. <laughs> you could mine Bitcoin with it. That would be <laughs> You could do that too. Whatever you have left, yeah. I kind of like it. Go to Tyler's resort and like, uh, take the super soft toilet roll, huh? Well, it, it actually makes an incredible amount of sense in that if your office, a lot of offices are starting to put in uh, EV charging stations. And if those EV charging stations also put in the solar panels to power them and you park the car under the solar panels and then the solar panels charge the cars during the day when the sun's out, that's when you want to do it. Then you drive the car home. It's a moving battery and you charge, you power your house off the car's battery. You're essentially running it off of solar power. So it's, it would be a, that would be an incredibly green way to get a lot of houses running off of solar power even though they're not installing much of anything. That's pretty hopeful. So the key is get every business out there and cities to just build tons of solar-powered charging systems. And maybe you have to pay to fill up the battery or not. And even if you did, it's likely to be cheaper than what you're paying the electrical grid uh, to power your house. Yeah, you're getting subsidized or free power, and you can use it for anything you want. That's right. Awesome. Yeah. Well, now grids are... The, the beauty of this is, is essentially your house is taking one of the key steps to becoming off-grid if you're running off of your car. Because then you're not... And you can sell it back to the power company. <laughs> if you have any extra left, yes, you could. You could take the power from oh. from your office and sell it to the city. Uh, but... The point is, is we do need to get everybody's houses off the grid, um, especially grids that are coal powered, mo most of all, um, and then natural gas powered, of which there's many. And um, that's one way to do it. But also because there's a lot of grid, there's a lot of homes like we, we see about in Texas and California has power outages. Texas has power outages. Lots of places having power outages. Now your home would be much more uh, robust in, in the in scenarios of power outages. You have you've now taken control of your own power to some degree. Um, the next step is to do the same with water and then internet. But you could do internet through satellite now. So hopefully everyone starts to off grid their their homes as grids become less dependable. But in doing so, people will start to realize, ah, shit, I no longer need to have buy homes that are limited to the grid. I can build a home anywhere in a really beautiful, natural area. Oh, and I can start growing my own food too. And I could, you know, power the home uh, off of the off of our cars and or hopefully you go through the process of just putting in your own solar or uh, or, you know a company like Helium, Tyler? Yes, you know that, that, that of course, one? yeah. Like, 
Do you wonder, um, <clears throat> would that be like a natural extension? I, you know, yep. They're, yeah, they're because gonna... a helium antenna can, you know, reach 10 kilometers, and they even claim 20 kilometers in an ideal scenario. So, in the and people are setting up helium antennas. The, the, the helium is so popular and it's spreading so fast that uh, the limitation is the hardware. People can't build the hardware fast enough of the for these antennas. But basically, it's a decentralized, open source network alternative to traditional telecommunication providers like Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile and Orange and, you know, Vodafone and whatnot. It's totally people power. Every individual can put up a node on the network and be paid when people access that node. And the whole thing runs magically. And it's quite, and it's, by the way, it's global. Tyler, Tyler, you're absolutely right. The limitation you're talking about is, um, hardware limitation on the network side, i.e. the router side, um, the producers have had difficulty manufacturing the chips and so forth. It's getting better now. But the other limitation is from the device side, because if you're going to have an iPhone or any other IoT device that's going to connect, connect to that network, um, you need a, a special chipset that can handle that radio frequency. So that's the other kind of adoption curve is, is getting hardware manufacturers to uh, pick up and uh, support the network. Yes. So I just noticed there's a whole bunch of people with their hands up. So just doing them one at a time here. Akash, just inviting you up here and uh, Samantha. So welcome, Akash. You had your hand up. I actually raised my hand by accident. I was only listening. Ah, so no, sorry. My no apologies. Worries. No problem. Samantha. Yeah, I just wanted to respond to your solar point because I have had an off-grid solar property since 2005. And I'm two kilometers from the nearest power point. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to have deep cell batteries. And I've spent more money on that property to be able to have you know, even like, like initially it was, I had literally one 60 watt light bulb would flatten the battery overnight. Mm. Like you just, it was so little power yes. that a battery will run. And, yep. and the, the cost of doing it is quite phenomenal. And I think that much as it's wonderful that we talk about the solar stuff, it's, it hasn't moved very far in terms of capacity. I'm just putting another $4,000 worth of now very cheap, solar panels are $1.50 mm -hmm. each, but it's your infrastructure. In Australia, we have so much solar that is available because we've got quite a lot of sun here yeah. that, in fact, the grid is now too, is extraordinarily expensive as for the, in the city for those of us that are not on solar in the city because the distribution network has to be paid by somebody. And so you've got that all that solar has actually draw, driven the price up phenomenally for people that can't afford or the conditions are not suitable to put solar on. So it's somebody still has to pay for the grid distribution of the energy when you are not able to do deep cell batteries and feed back into it. Yeah, I, I use lit I'm 100% off grid myself with lithium and it's the best thing I ever did. It's way cheaper than the grid here. And the grid's very cheap here. It does depend on where you are though, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Because you're like in my the place that I'm talking about in the bush, it's I've now got so much 
climate change that the um, the the actual cloud cover is too significant to get enough solar to be able to run anything. Ah. So I'm on more and more diesel because the climate is changing. And and in the city, I couldn't do it because there were too many trees. So I'm just saying you're not always, even though you may want to do it, the technology may be there. It's not. It's just not available for everybody. Yeah, fair enough. I, I guess it's not. Yeah, you have to have direct sunlight is kind of the, the limiting factor of being able to do solar for sure. And yeah, the I I know people do use non-lithium batteries. I think nearly everyone I ever met who did that uh, aspired to get off of them and onto lithium as soon as they could. And then we have a, a new generation of uh, batteries that people are claiming uh, will be coming online soon that bring lithium basically comes out to about a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour and for storage and that should go down the 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 newest copper battery uh lithium rust batteries are claiming they drive that down to like uh twenty dollars per kilowatt hour if that happens as they claim that it does and they've got huge investors like bill gates and jeff bezos and they they say it's real um, if it is real and they start producing that, then the, the, it would, I don't think there'll be anywhere on the planet that it, uh, that it won't be cost effective. It'll be much cheaper to be off grid than on grid. Yeah, so, and I, I would agree, but to battery, the batteries and the rare metals needed for them at this point, as far as an owner, he can correct me. I'd love to know that it's possible because my solar guy said at that point chose not to put in solar put in lithium, but the rare metal extraction from, you know, its molten state when it comes out of the ground is only currently divided in China. So they have kind of a monopoly on the division of the met, the rare metals. We've got a lot of them actually, but just dividing them out for being able to use in all these batteries is, is apparently one of the key problems. Well, and to that point, um, lithium was found on on indigenous lands in the U.S. And so one of the tribes is petitioning the U.S. federal government to say, hey, hands off our lithium in this particular case. But, you know, as I think about this, it, you know, it, it brings me back to this point that I find myself like spending a lot of time, at least in my head. And, and that's, you know, how do we encourage people who live in communities that are, quote unquote, off the grid, simply because they've not yet been connected? So how do we, how do we um, encourage them or give them the tools so that they don't become dependent on something that those of us who have access or resources or knowledge to want to get off of, how do we help them to say, you know what, we understand that this has been the development trajectory for the past 50 years, but we already have some things figured out and there's a richness in this knowledge that we have as a community. And maybe they just need a few more resources to make it a bit more sustainable than, you know, how they've been living currently. But I just, I think that, you know, from a holistic uh, community standpoint, global community standpoint, we would all be better off if, you know, those of us who are on the grid can figure out ways to get off. And for those people who have been lagging behind because they have not had access, if we give them the tools to be able to live more sustainably in the ways that they've already been doing, um, then I think that we all benefit. Okay. I want to jump into, got a whole bunch more tweets to get into. <clears throat> From Nita sends in this interesting one. 
From Hollywood Reporter, former Pentagon UFO official to reveal shocking details in new book. The former head of the U.S. government's secretive UFO program will pen a book for HarperCollins that includes a profound implications for humanity. And a related one, also from NETA, that uh, Congress calls for a permanent office to address unidentified aerial phenomena, meaning UFOs. So rather than a committee, in, they want a permanent uh, team. Congressional leaders propose legislation that would create a permanent Pentagon office tasked with investigating UFOs, or what they now call UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. So they must know something. <laughs> and then Chris, Christian Watts, I invited you up, um, but it looks like you're not able to join, so you might have to bounce out and then back in, as it sometimes happens. Ted Abramson sends in one, speaking of electric storage systems, uh, the news is that two Swedish companies introduce a mobile battery container solution. They are developing containerized energy storage systems meaning batteries that are in that are basically housed inside of a shipping container that will enable the zero emissions or low emissions operations of vessels so you can imagine a, a shipping container itself becomes the the container for the battery and then the shipping container powers the ships that it's on so it's quite interesting and this is, by the way, no ordinary company. ABB is a, an absolute uh, powerhouse of a company when it comes to things like this. Uh, ABB makes all the robotic arms for all the car companies who now make cars robotically, which basically all the big ones do. Uh, ABB's uh, mind-blowingly advanced in, in these types of things. So... Uh, and, and Swedes don't put out press releases like this until they've already have all of their ducks in a row. So I imagine it'd be very interesting to see how this one plays out. ABB's containerized energy storage systems is claimed to offer one of the highest energy densities in the market with 20-foot container, which is a half-size container, shipping container, offering a standardized installation and resulting in lower cost for companies and faster delivery time. I just I love the idea of using a conventional shipping container. The containerized energy storage system expands integration options across multiple types of ships and delivery and delivers a solution that can be fully serviced from outside the unit for enhanced safety. Okay. So the next one, I just tweeted that one out to the Tech News Twitter account. The next one also from Netta. Oh, it's about the the revolt of the delivery workers. Revolt of delivery workers exploited by apps, attacked by thieves. We, we covered this one earlier, actually. Uh, and it's a really interesting deep dive into the world of New York City delivery people. And the next one, Facebook. Oh, the Facebook whitelist. We covered that one. Apple patches a, a vulnerability. There's a new update of 14.8, which everyone should update. And then... The, Heyman found this interesting one from Fox Business that Apple Car focus is to be based on design and the vehicle, whatever that means. Morgan Stanley analyst calls Apple Car the next mobile device. Morgan Stanley analyst Katie Huberti 
shared her thoughts recently about how Apple might approach the development of the rumored Apple car. Let's see what she says. The car is essentially the next mobile device, and this is a category that Apple has focused on for years, Huberti said, adding that Apple tends to focus on markets where, quote-unquote, computing will become central to a human's everyday life. Apple takes the other, uh, she says, one of the most common questions is, why doesn't Apple just focus on software and services, Huberti said, after all, Making the hardware and the software right out of the gate, as Tesla has done, is fraught with complexity. And for a new car company, getting it right isn't always possible. Apple takes the other side of that. The strategy is about doing fewer things, but doing them really well and increasing the chances of success. Apple is successful when they're vertically integrated. They want a hand in the design in how the software communicates with the hardware and what the right components and technologies to use so they can't be successful in services until they are successful in selling the device that this new type of computer and services sits on top of. That means it's probable that Apple will come out with an EV. It, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if Apple comes to the market with an EV. They did this with the iPhone, where in the first iPhone there was no App Store. It was first about getting the hardware right. I think the focus right now, I'm sure, is on the design and the vehicle itself, but with well-thought-out plans around what services could emerge longer term. And then Eric sends in one from Vice. Oh, about the Apple update. We got that. Antonio sends in one from Forbes that an influencer is suing Pinterest, alleging that she co-founded the company and might have been a billionaire today. A widely followed Pinterest influencers filed a lawsuit against Pinterest and its billionaire co-founders saying that she helped start the business but was cut out of any financial rewards. Christine Martinez, a former Walmart executive turned online personality, says she counseled Pinterest founders as they initially worked on the firm around its start in 2008. According to the lawsuit, Martinez advised the pair on many different aspects of the company, including its signature visual bookmarking feature and the ability to create collections of images called boards and helped find influencers to promote the site. She originally met uh, one of the founders through her husband, who had lived with uh, uh, Ben Silberman while studying at Yale. Martina says she never had anything in writing about her status as a co-founder, but expected to be compensated similar to Silberman and, and the other co-founder, Evan Sharp. Uh, Silberman remains president of uh, Pinterest CEO, and Sharp uh, works there still as the chief design and creative officer. And Skiara left Pinterest within a few years of its founding. Silberman and Skiara retained billion-dollar stakes in the company. A Pinterest spokesperson dismissed Martina's story as completely without merit, and will and we will defend our position in court. In the legislation, Martina's accused Silberman and Skiara of breach of implied contract, idea theft, unjust enrichment, and unfair business practices. Martina's allegations will likely renew questions about how Pinterest, a social network popular among women, treats its female executives. Last year, Pinterest's former chief operating officer, Francois Brozier, sued the company alleging gender discrimination. Pinterest settled the dis in December for $22.5 million, but only after additional comments and stories about racism and inequalities at the company surfaced from other Pinterest workers, prompting a virtual staff walkout last August. 
In court documents, Martina's attorneys say she's believed she'd be rewarded after the company went public, which it did in 2019. If that is the case, it would have been hard to sit on the sideline recently. The company shares struggled at first, but soared during the last year's coronavirus lockdown, where they trade around $55 today, roughly double from the IPO. Um, if Is this in California? The, she will need to show that she incurred some of the costs of building Pinterest initially if she wants to try and uh, involve the California partnership law, where in California, even if you don't have an agreement, if you're behaving as equal partners and sharing in the costs equally, then you can make a claim that you're equally entitled to uh, as a partner. You're an implied partner because you were sharing the costs and labor. But if she can't show that she was equally contributing to the labor and the costs, good luck, Christine. <laughs> you know, on the face of it, I mean, it's really hard for me to believe that three guys develop something like Pinterest, which I think mean, we've talked about. No, there's one, one, there, there one female co-founder. Okay. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. You're right. I'm just, you're right. You're yeah. right. Paul, it was Paul Skira, Ben Silberman, and Evan Sharp. Evan, by the way, spoke, it came to Stockholm to speak at my event about three years ago and was just a sweetheart of a guy and gave one of the best presentations I've ever seen. It was fantastic. But um, yeah. you're right. I mean, it's three. You're, you're, fair point. Why is, well, how did three guys come up with an app that is so interestingly suited to female users? And, you know, stay-at-home moms and scrapbookers. I mean, they they have to be so deep into the you know that that customer segment psyche, you know, um, to have developed a platform with no strong female input. I mean, it's not to say that it's impossible, but I just find it to be curious. Yep, fair point. So, and the next one up is thank you for that one, Antonio. The next one is from RCC, from CNBC News, remote-controlled armed robot to patrol borders and battlefields. Now unveiled, proponents say such semi-autonomous machines enable armies to protect their soldiers, while critics fear this marks another dangerous step towards uh, militarized robots. And you can get a look at this sexy beast in the article i just tweeted to the tech news twitter account it's got a big gun it's got night vision scopes it looks like a very miniaturized tank and i want one <laughs> holy shit does this look cool it, it looks like a very miniaturized tank smaller than a car uh half the size of a car but looks like a tank looks like a, a tank for a two-year-old child with a pivoting machine gun, night vision, and who knows what else. It's the most advanced of more than half a dozen unmanned vehicles developed by Aerospace Industries subsidiary ELTA systems over the past 15 years. The Israeli military is currently using a smaller but similar vehicle called the Jaguar to patrol the border with the Gaza Strip and help enforce a blockade Israel imposed since 2007. Gaza's home to 2 million Palestinians. Okay. Oh, it's an Israeli defense contractor on Monday unveiled a remote-controlled armed robot 
it says can patrol battle zones, track infiltrators, and open fire. The unmanned vehicle is the latest addition to the world of drone technology, which is rapidly reshaping the modern battlefield. So we now have drone autonomous militarized drones for both land, sea, and air, all three. I've now seen examples of all three. The land one, interestingly, is the newest. <laughs> we saw air, and then we just read about a, a sea drones. And those are happening. All three of them are all happening simultaneously, rather quickly. All simultaneously. Quite interesting. Remember, there is a smelly drone? Yes, with an, yeah, a little tiny drone that they ripped the antennas off of a moth and embedded it onto a drone that, that works. <clears throat> so you can uh, yeah that's a that's a wild land drone that i just tweeted out thank you to rcc for that one the woolly mammoth is coming back we covered that one dunkin donuts uh is back in the news again evan two days in a row we got to give this dunkin donuts pr team a raise over here Yesterday, Dunkin' Donuts was in the news because they put out a statement that uh, they had to shut down because they, they couldn't get enough staff. Uh, but they're back in the news today in, in the Boston.com. It says, Dunkin' opens its first digital-only store in Boston. All orders are placed via app or kiosk. Oh, oh, clever. So yesterday, the headline about Dunkin' Donuts was they had to shut down because they couldn't get enough staff. Today, the headline is they just opened a staff list Dunkin' Donuts. PR. <laughs> Forget making small talk while ordering your iced coffee. Dunkin's new Boston store ensures you won't have to talk to a single human, a human being when placing your order. On Tuesday, Massachusetts-based Dunkin will celebrate the grand opening of its first digital-only store located at 22 Beacon Street on Beacon Hill, dubbed Duncan Digital. The store, which quietly opened to the public on August 18th, only fills orders placed through the Duncan mobile app or at one of its two in-store kiosks. Orders are then available for contactless pickup at the designated area within the restaurant. According to a press release, the number of on-site employees at the Strictly Digital Outpost matches that of its restaurants using traditional ordering systems. Duncan Digital employees will focus on fulfilling orders with heightened speed and accuracy until they too are replaced by machines. Do commemorate I the... I was actually... Hmm? I was... Sorry. I was just going to say, I was actually a little surprised yesterday when you, you know, when you read that, that uh, maybe, you know, they needed to close down a bit because it just seems like almost everything that comes in front of my eyes uh it seems that dunkin donuts was going so out of the way to kind of you know bring their brand back up again and make it cool and hip and it seemed like everything that i was seeing somebody was holding a dunkin donuts cup and you know they were doing some i guess deals probably with the influencers on on tiktok and instagram and all these places so it seemed like they were doing so great and they were trying to you know bring their brand up again um and and to hear that yesterday i was surprised but yeah this this makes sense now Okay, so the next one up is from Renjinth, that Amazon's creating a point-of-sale system, meaning a digital cash register. Of course, there's no cash. It's just an iPad, but that's what point-of-sale systems are these days. To compete with Shopify and PayPal and obviously Square, who's also a very big player in POS systems. And the question is, would you 
use an Amazon point of sale system in your store, knowing they're obviously getting access to all of your juicy, juicy data <laughs> of between you and your customers of what you're selling and how much you're selling it for and how often you're selling it and where the customer is and where they're based so that they can improve their systems. The Borg is getting smarter by putting POS systems in retailers. It's very clever. That's a genius move by Amazon from a data perspective. I'm, I wonder if they'll give it away for free. And Evan sends in this one from that Taco Bell tests a 30-day taco subscription to drive more frequent visits. Now we're talking fast food subscriptions, my daily taco. And if they want to subscribe to the bathroom, you use Chipotle instead of Taco Bell. <laughs> I want a Subway subscription. Uh, in gadgets, say researchers, platforms like Facebook have played a major role in fueling polarization. Social media platforms like Facebook have played a major role in exacerbating political polarization that can lead to uh, division and whatnot, is the headline from Engadget. New York University Stern Center for Business and Human Rights. Social media platforms like Facebook have played a major role in exacerbating political polarization that can lead to such extreme that lead to such extremist violence. From NYU. Okay, and then the next one is from Verdane that Airtel in India, which is one of the big communication companies in India, is now getting ready to counter Mukesh Ambani's $50 smartphone, the new Android phone called the G phone that everyone in India is eagerly awaiting. It's basically a really nice smartphone with Android for 50 bucks, which has huge implications. You could get another 250 million Indians online with such a phone. And Airtel is ready to counter. So you're going to have competition here for the price of Android phones is now dropping down to 50 bucks. And it will not take long for those things to spread way beyond India into Southeast Asia, Europe, America, everywhere else. And that's going to put downward pressure, especially on Android phones, but on smartphones generally, which is a great thing. So the next article, why companies from US, UK... Chile, Japan, etc. want India as a captive hub to take them digital. Well, because they have a huge demographic of English speaking in an English speaking democ uh, democracy. South Korea researchers create a chameleon like artificial skin. The skin could be an important technology for the military. And then it, is Vinay on stage? No. No. Okay. We read his article already. Amazon announces cashierless Whole Foods coming next year in two locations, Seattle and D.C. And uh, here comes the removing the workers. Um, the next one, Facebook office cleaner who held protests at London site fears for his job. Suspended, suspended union rep calls on social media giant Facebook to intervene after exhausted workers complain of extra workload. And the Ola Future Factory in India is going to be run ex entirely by 10,000 women. Apple still reliant on one core product as it nudges towards a $3 trillion valuation, which is they're referring to the iPhone. The iPhone maker may be set to break 
the $3 trillion valuation, but it's starting to look more and more like a one-gadget pony, <clears throat> according to The Guardian, who's, yeah, doesn't really have, that's not entirely true, honestly. If they come out with a VR headset and that becomes a whole new platform, they'll get to $4 billion, so... This is the problem with non-geeks writing uh, tech headlines. So the next one, what is the metaverse and why is everyone talking about it from the Economic Times in India? As India starts wondering, what is this whole VR thing you guys are all excited about? Now that India is getting smartphones, <laughs> they're going to realize there's this thing called VR and AR. And if India goes big on that, uh, watch out. The next one, uh, for the first time, a Navy drone ship launched a missile at sea so here's the it's all going even the military is going autonomous we've got autonomous <clears throat> the soldiers are getting replaced you've got drones now on land sea you've got drones in the water you've got drone submarines that are patrolling the oceans you have drone navy ships launching missiles you've got Flying drones, we've had those for quite a while in the military, and they're bombing people in the Middle East. We've been doing that for quite a while, but the, the drones are also getting much smaller. And then now you have this Israeli drone tank-looking thing. So you have militarized drones in land, sea, and air, launching missiles from sea and air, and soon land. And, yeah, it's all... Will we need as many... Arm, you know, physical people in the military as well. We don't, and we just—it should just be like literally battle bots. I mean, I want to live in that world where we don't kill each other, but we just compare and fight our technology against each other. Accenture will help one of the world's most isolated countries open up, according to no doubt Accenture, being reported by Fortune Australia which closed its borders to protect against COVID-19, will launch a vaccine passport, and Accenture is going to help with that. Okay, Xiaomi Smart Glasses revives dreams and nightmares, is the headline. Although Google failed spectacularly to bring or to turn it into a commercial success, the idea of high-tech smart glasses never really faded, and now Xiaomi is getting into the smart glasses. I just tweeted it out so you can see a photo of these Xiaomi Smart Glasses. Uh, that knowing Xiaomi, they'll cost next to nothing and be rather stylish and work quite well. But we'll see. Um, the Wired headline, China's, <clears throat> China's digital yuan is a warning to the world. The digital yuan was born as China's answer to Facebook's Libra. But it's much more than that. Yes, indeed it is. Zoom dysmorphia is following us into the real world. 18 months after using front-facing cameras has distorted our self-image, and a new study reveals the effects aren't going away. And neuro... This is a crazy article people are talking about. We mentioned it yesterday. Neurograins uh, from UC San Diego and uh, other partnerships. These tiny, tiny little chips that can connect into the neurons in your brain, send and receive signals, and understandably has a lot of people talking. Dozens of microchips scattered all over the cord cortical surface of your brain might allow researchers to listen in on thousands of neurons at the same time. 
And South Korea fines Google $177 million for blocking Samsung and LG, others on uh, Android. Apple rushes to block a zero-click iPhone spyware. Apple issues urgent warning to all iPhone users to update their phones. Mitsubishi to use Nissan-made platform for all Japan models. Um... And we covered the Facebook. We covered iPhone 13. iPhone owners more likely to sell a trade. And the iPhone 13 will have the 120 hertz display. Well, we will find out when we meet again in five and a half hours. So we will pause. We Even though we have three hours of tweets left to go, <clears throat> because most of them are about the iPhone. And that's going to we're going to join in. Five and a half hours, we'll do the news, we'll do the headlines, and then we will tune into the Apple Live event for the launching of iPhone 13, AirPods 3, and what was the other? Oh, the Apple Watch 7. Cool. So thank you, everybody, for another tech news around the world. Yeah. All righty. See ya. Happy Tuesday.